Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. This episode of Talking Sleep is brought to you in part by Avidel Pharmaceuticals. The content of this episode was independently developed by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Kieran Maskey to the show. Dr. Maskey is a pediatric neurologist and sleep medicine physician specializing in narcolepsy and sleep problems of children with neurological disorders. She is an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Maskey led the task force that developed the new AASM clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of central disorders of hypersomnolence. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Maskey. Thank you for having me. So the new clinical practice guideline updates the AASM's previous recommendations for the treatment of narcolepsy and other hypersomnias of central origin. So what prompted the update? Well, I think a number of new um, medications came to market and were approved by the United States FDA. And so there was an opportunity to review newer medications that have been showing benefit to our patients with hypersomnia conditions. So then how is this different from the previous practice parameters? Yeah, it's a good question. So the last practice parameters were published in 2007, and prior practice parameters were based on a combination of both um, expert review of existing evidence using the Oxford grading system, um, as well as kind of clinical expertise or consensus-based statements based off of the expert task forces. Um, The 2020 guidelines is kind of a departure from that because it no longer relies on expert consensus for making practice parameter recommendations. Um, Specifically, it uses a system called the grade system, which is a formalized structure for guideline development that's very data-driven. So tell me a little bit more about this grading system. What, What do all the grades mean? Yeah, it's a great question. So GRADE is a transparent and very structured system for rating quality of evidence. It specifically stands for GRADE, Recommendation, Assessment, Development, and then Evaluation. And um, it gives you specific ways of how to assess uh, the literature and any studies to provide evidence. So specifically, um, you would have to pre-identify which populations you want to study, what's the comparator, um, what's the number of, of studies that are existing in the literature that you think need to be there, how many patients were in each study. So there's a lot of specifications that go into what is considered quality evidence even before Um, our task force was able to review the data. So I think one notable difference from prior recommendations are that using GRADE, we did have specifications to exclude um, studies that didn't have at least 10 patients, say, with narcolepsy or the disease of interest. Um, So as a result, we weren't able to comment on very commonly used medications um, for for these recommendations. So for example, Um, SSRI or SNRI medications, which are used for the treatment of cataplexy and narcolepsy. Um, There were studies there, but they were usually case series and less than 10 patients. And so we weren't able to include them in making a recommendation for them. Well, and isn't that surprising? 
you know, when I was in fellowship, those were the things that we were taught, right? As these are standard of care. And so it's interesting now that you are able to go back and really assess the quality of evidence and that would support those recommendations. Tell me a little bit about some of that data regarding um, stimulants like Adderall or Ritalin. Yeah, so I don't think that anything we were taught in residency or fellowship was wrong. I will start with that. I think you know this is still um, uh, this really is a commentary of just really where we are right now in our literature assessments. Um, you know, standardly used medications are yet relatively inexpensive compared to newer medications, and so they're oftentimes not restudied for clinical development or clinical trials. And um, newer clinical trials will compare their drug or treatment to placebo rather than you know standard medications. So there's really a lack of clinical effectiveness studies out there. So um, it really is a commentary on that there just isn't as robust of data um, on these medications, like you were saying, methylphenidate, amphetamine, SSRI, SNRI medication, commonly used medications in the literature. One common thing to remember is that the grade system is not saying that a a treatment is good or bad. It's really just commenting on the, the quality of evidence for existing treatments. So in that context, um, there really was not enough sufficient information um, on methylphenidate and amphetamines to make, say, strong recommendations because the sample sizes were often small or there might have been imprecision in the in the reporting of the information that affected our, our ability to rate the quality of evidence as high and thus a, make a strong recommendation for or against it. So, um, it's a complex answer to your very simple question, but I think the the, the bottom line is that um, medications that we do use all the time and we know to be effective should still be used. Um, the purpose of really this grade system is to provide increased confidence in some of the newer drugs where the data is much more robust. So I'm wondering if you can give me a high-level overview of some of the important changes in in the set of guidelines. Yeah. Um, so there's many recommendations in this set of guidelines that have either a strong recommendation, which means that we think that the recommendation applies to the majority of patients in that disease group. And then there's a number of conditional recommendations where we felt that there was benefits um, clearly shown in the clinical trials um, and um, manageable side effects, Um, but perhaps there might be certain groups that the the drug would benefit more, or maybe we felt like there's more um, evidence that needed before it became a strong recommendation. So that qualification of strong or conditional is something that differs from this set of guidelines from the last. And um, specifically, strong recommendations that we made were for narcolepsy. We had strong recommendations for the use of modafinil, pitolisant, sodium oxabate, soriamphetol, and we had strong recommendations for use of modafinil for idiopathic hypersomnia. I thought those are really helpful, especially because you did include the newer medications, which, you know, I think we're all kind of um, becoming accustomed to. Yeah, I think so. I think um, the this the 
data um, was robust for these studies, so they oftentimes had high quality um, randomized controlled study design. I think maybe one difference then from other guidelines were that you know most of these high quality studies are going to be sponsored by pharmaceutical right. companies. <laughs> and so um, we did not downgrade um, the, the evidence because it was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. Rather, we really looked if there was any suppression of results or bias in the study mm -hmm. design that would influence the results. Um, so I think that you know the quality of evidence is improving overall over time, and that seems to be a, allows us to make some stronger recommendations, perhaps compared to prior guidelines. I wonder if this will help us. And I don't know if you experience this too, but I have a lot of you know sodium oxalate resistance with my patients, meaning not that it doesn't work, but that they're mm -hmm. really scared of it. And I wonder if seeing it sort of as a as a strong recommendation um, may help them become more accepting of this potential treatment option. Yeah, I'm sure. I think um, having uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and, and a robust review of, of all the medications um, certainly could help improve the, the confidence of use among patients and providers. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I too experience that in my patient population. I think um, another thing that oftentimes helps me is just having people who are on sodium oxabate being willing to talk to new patients who want to know more mm -hmm. from a patient perspective. Um, you know, certainly there's a lot of information online and there's a whole bunch of um, online resources, but I think just being able to connect patient to patient <laughs> is sometimes so helpful so that in my case, parents can ask questions that are more relevant to them. These guidelines are not intended to be prescriptive, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not necessarily based on expert opinion like previous guidelines were, but rather to really look at this new data, which sounds like it's more robust, and, and that probably reflects the evolution of our field. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think it really highlights where we have to move forward. I think, like I said, um, having clinical effectiveness studies where drugs are compared to standard of care rather than just placebo would be helpful from a clinical perspective about weighing the evidence of supporting or the side effects of one treatment versus another. Um, but I think, you know, we do have to consider going backwards in some sense and, um, you know, including uh, clinical trials for methylphenidate or SSRI to be, have, you know, real confidence in the efficacy and, and side effect profiles of these commonly used drugs for treatments for, for conditions such as narcolepsy with cataplexy. Well, and that's a really important point, too, that all of these are compared to placebo rather than standard of care. So is there something then that I should take away from these guidelines in terms of if I'm if I'm looking at my patient with narcolepsy type one or type two, what changes um, or, or what how should I interpret the information in the guidelines for those patients? Yeah. So I think it's important to know that the guidelines should be used as a source of reference for advocating for patients. So oftentimes the newer medications that come out are going to be more costly, for example. But if you feel that that medication is going to be beneficial for the patient, it's useful to have the guidelines um, specify what is recommended, um, whether it was strong or conditional. 
And it also is a nice summary, I think, of um, the evidence from multiple studies over the, the benefits and risks for patients. So um, hopefully it's a more concise reference for clinical providers. I actually really did appreciate that in the abstract, that you were just very plain about this is a strong recommendation, this is suggested. I, I really liked how you just laid it right out there. It made it very user-friendly. Yeah, our task force was asked to both publish clinical practice guidelines for for people like you and I, people, the clinical <laughs> providers who just want the information. Um, and so that's what I think believe you're referencing. But for those who want a deep dive into how the guidelines were made and all the elements of the grade system that we had to go through, the quality of evidence, the risks, benefits, the um, patient values, um, there is a systematic review that's separately published, and I will say quite lengthy, <laughs> um, uh, for those who want more information. So break it down for me. How will these changes impact our patients? I think that it basically will offer more op opportunities to try newer drugs as, is one thing. So this offers, uh, so, so we included, for instance, Soriamphetol and Pitolisant, um, which were approved by the FDA for the treatment of narcolepsy in 2019. So it provides some strength of evidence and um, uh, the risks and benefit profile for that population. So those are newer drugs that would be potentially supported. Um, I think it also just sort of highlights um, for research purposes and clinical providers, um, just where there's gaps in the information. Um, so, you know, I think things people um, have supported uh, various grant mechanisms for going back and studying um, methylphenidate for narcolepsy and things like that. So I think it opens more research opportunities and clinical trials for, for both healthcare providers uh, and who are researchers. Um, but I think the big thing too is just that um, it highlights the whole breadth of treatment options um, that are necessary to treat patients with narcolepsy and um, highlights, for instance, in narcolepsy, what's useful for daytime sleepiness, what's helpful for cataplexy, what's useful for disrupted nighttime sleep. And so people can kind of peruse that for um, some a little bit more tailored information for their patients. So what about hypersomnias relating to medical conditions like trauma, you know, head injury, and Klein-Levin syndrome? Here, we had even less information um, based off of data. So oftentimes, um, the, the literature had very small studies, um, meaning small sample size studies. Um, the disease population was highly heterogeneous. So I think that even made it more difficult to really kind of extract um, the high quality of evidence we, we hope to get from these types of um, studies. But we were able to see that there was um, benefit to many of the treatments that we had studied, so specifically modafinil or armodafinil um, for traumatic brain injury, for instance, um, seemed to show benefit with minimal side effects or, or harm. Um, the strength of the evidence wasn't uh, as strong as, say, if it was a randomized, there were multiple randomized controlled studies, but we were still able to give uh, conditional recommendations in that example. So many of the other conditions you mentioned um, did receive conditional recommendations for specific treatments. Um, 
based off what we could feasibly do with what we had. And then what about the one that I'm sure we'll be contending with now for years to come, you know, this COVID-related hypersomnia? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, um, so, it's so interesting. And there's a lot of really great people working on that in the, in the sleep field. Um, I think what we know about it is really that it seems to be a problem of fatigue. Um, many people do report sleepiness and long sleep times. And I think that, you know, it really will highlight different um, studies. So it might be that, it, you know, that this overlaps with, say, other um, infectious diseases like Lyme, for instance, or mono, where, where people oftentimes complain of, of unrefreshing sleep and fatigue for long periods of time. And maybe, you know, it has nothing to do with sleep. Maybe this is, uh, you know, an inflammatory profile in the right. body that, that emerges that sort of promotes um, these feelings of fatigue or, or feelings of unrefreshing sleep. But in fact, the sleep architecture is fine. So, you know, I think that that's where the studies have to be is just really be quite broad, not only like focusing on sleep architecture or even the metrics that we're studying, but looking at peripheral things that might be infect, affecting um, uh, fatigue levels. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Maskey about her research and experience in treating children with hypersomnia. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Narcolepsy treatment is about to change and Avidel Pharmaceuticals is leading the way. With our deep understanding of narcolepsy and unique drug delivery technology, we're committed to advancing narcolepsy treatment to make the dream of better days and nights a reality. Visit avidelfornarcolepsy.com to sign up for updates on our progress. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking to Dr. Kieran Maskey about the AASM clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of hypersomnias. So you live in, in pediatric land. Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered, um, you know, we're hearing a lot, for example, with COVID vaccinations and they haven't been tested in, you know, in, in the pediatric population. Is this a barrier that you come across where these medications are FDA approved to treat narcolepsy? Um, is there a limitation? Do you find that there are a lot of pediatric trials taking place or do those wait until the adult trials have been completed? Yeah, generally the um, pediatric trials will only follow adult um, trials just for showing efficacy and um, specifically risks. I think that might be changing where the FDA is now encouraging pediatric trials. Mm. But you're right, um, you know, pediatrics, there's only been one clinical trial um, in, in narcolepsy that included children that was a randomized control study design that was for sodium oxabate for the treatment of narcolepsy with cataplexy and narcolepsy type two as well. Um, so there really has been a lack of data. I am proud to say that these guidelines do include pediatrics and we're able to offer some recommendations um, regarding specifically modafinil and sodium oxabate based on the evidence. But yeah, you're right. It, it is a frustrating situation to oftentimes have to, um, you know, rest on the strength of smaller studies um, to get drugs approved for patients. So you specialize in treating narcolepsy in children and were involved in those trials early on. Tell me about what you've learned from your research and now this recent document. 
Well, we participated as a site for the sodium oxidized randomized controlled study um, for narcolepsy in the pediatric population. And I think what I learned from that was that it certainly is feasible to do these types of studies um, in, in the pediatric population. Um, there was a great appetite to participate in that study, and it resulted in FDA approval for sodium oxabate for children, um, which was, you know, it adds to our arsenal of limited treatments <laughs> in, in that group. Um, I would say in my own research, which I study the neurophysiology, specifically sleep of patients with um, CNS hypersomnolence disorders in the pediatric cohorts. Um, I think what I feel is going to be useful in terms of future practice guideline developments and clinical trials is that there might be biomarkers within these hypersomnia conditions that might help identify more homogeneous populations. Um, and when you study more homogeneous populations, um, generally speaking, the, the clinical effect is going to be greater. Um, so you don't dilute sort of the, the effect you want by having a very um, heterogeneous population. So I am hopeful that the work that I do can in the future be used for identification of these patients and, and per perhaps stronger recommendations in the future. Oh, so tell me more about this. Tell me about what you're learning from these sleep biomarkers that will help us treat hypersomnia, maybe in terms of sleep stability? Yeah. So um, people with narcolepsy type 1, it's been well described that they have a problem of sleep instability. So it's not just that people with narcolepsy are sleepy, they also have very fragmented sleep. And this is referred to clinically as disrupted night nocturnal sleep. Um, that you know, hadn't been really well studied in children. And we basically had done a study um, in collaboration with Dr. Plotzi's group in uh, Bologna, Italy, that basically just highlighted that these are, this sleep instability is common, but more than that, um, that it could actually be harnessed for diagnostic biomarkers for the for identification of narcolepsy type one in children using the nocturnal polysomnogram alone. Um, so we built off of that on a second study where we looked at the sleep architecture of children with narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia and found that there was sort of a trend towards these distinct groups where, as I said before, the narcolepsy type 1 group tends to have various measures of sleep instability, and we used um, Kaplan-Meier uh, survival curves of, of their bouts, basically, to look at the survival of the bouts, how, how quickly they were transitioning to another um, sleep stage and what that stage was. Um, the narcolepsy type 2 group, interestingly, differed from the type 1 group in that they didn't have as much sleep instability, but rather when they transitioned into N1 sleep, so drowsy sleep, they tended to kind of hover there. Hmm. And plausibly, that's why they may not feel sleep as, as refreshing to them. And then in the idiopathic hypersomnia group, um, we saw that when pe people transitioned into N2 sleep, they tended to kind of stay there. <laughs> um, the stability of their N2 sleep was greater than the other, um, of the control population. And so that seemed to imply that maybe their problem with sleep is different than say these other narcolepsy groups where they basically have almost like an overly stable sleep pattern and, and plausibly, 
That's why they have such profound difficulties with sleep inertia or feelings of unrefreshing sleep because it's really not a duration problem or sleep efficiency problem. It's just sort of an overly stable problem. So that's interesting. It kind of allows you to split instead of lump. Yes. <laughs> so um, there is that lumping and splitting, right. uh, you know, I think argument in the field. And um, I can certainly understand the frustration that MSLT is not reliable for narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia. We probably need, number one, better ways of doing the mm -hmm. PSG MSLT that make it more reliable, but two, really determining if there's better testing out there that captures the, their their sleep physiology or their their pathology altogether. Um, so yeah, I do think that it's something that hopefully you know if replicated, you know the the sleep physiology that we find, maybe we can match specific types of tests too. Well, so that's you know tell me about what you think about um, some of the data. I'm thinking about Lynn Marie Trotty's data where uh, the test retest reliability of MSLT is in question, where people will transition from, you know, one diagnosis to the other. Yeah, it could mean a few things. I mean, um, I think the truth is that um, most centers, including ours, do not use actigraphy um, standard um, prior to doing the PSG MSLT. So um, that the, you know, while we certainly probably counsel and use sleep logs and, and do these things prior to the PSG MSLT, um, objective testing might be more beneficial to really ensure that someone's coming to the sleep lab like with good amount of sleep satiation, no circadian delays or other things that certainly can confound the results. Um, you know, medication withdrawal, um, while it's recommended, is not always adhered to. And as we found in, in our own pediatric cohort, um, you know, various substances sometimes can be used, um, specifically caffeine and sometimes marijuana. And, you know, these things might also potentially impact the results of the study. So I think that really goes into the process of the PSG MSLT um, that might affect the reliability. But then we really don't know if um, these conditions, specifically narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia, are stable conditions. You know, mm. we don't have longitudinal data um, in many cases that's, you know, prospective and, and uh, done with systematic um, assessments to know whether people's sleep physiology or their symptoms might change with time. And so that's really, I think, a major gap in the field. So do you think we should then change our MSLT protocol or maybe revisit the eight-minute cutoff? I think that the, those types of questions are in development. Um, there's an American Academy of Sleep Medicine task force that's looking at the protocol for the PSG MSLT for any modifications based off of um, data. But, you know, I, I think that there's certainly a struggle there because there's probably not a lot of data for people doing things on their own and differently. Right. Um, I think there was a study um, from the Dovier group basically showing that a 32-hour extended polysomnogram had very high sensitivity and specificity for capturing the physiology of idiopathic hypersomnia, but that might not be uh, feasible in most centers. And so I think we do have to come up with more feasible ways of capturing the disease physiology. So for example, 
um, if the problem in idiopathic hypersomnia is long sleep times, um, you know, is a 24 hour or a 14 hour or even a 12 hour test going to be, you know, helpful for distinguishing it from other sleepy populations? Um, you know, then, and, you know, if sleep inertia is a, is a critical component of that disease, are there any kind of cognitive tests that we could couple to that test to make it more robust? Well, and I love that you're kind of focusing on more of these um, patient-centered outcomes, you know, in, in terms of not just the objective stuff that we want to see, but really the things that are probably more important to patients, like that sleep inertia. Yeah, well, I think that that too, just tying this back to the grade recommendations, um, is a strength of the grade recommendations, um, because one of the, the measures that it, it assesses is um, the values of the patient. So in order to essentially reach high grade um, recommendation standards, you need to survey the patients to find out what those values of importance are. And so while clinically we measure, for instance, daytime sleepiness, say with an upward scale, that that of course captures a, a big part of the disease um, symptomology, but is, is that the only thing that's important to the patient? So for instance, um, they may have more concerns about cognition or things like brain fog or their ability to concentrate during their workday that they may report a normal sleepiness score, less than 10 anyway, um, but really are still functionally impaired. So I think to that end, the research we're doing in developing patient-reported outcomes specifically in the pediatric narcolepsy population is really trying to get at that. You know, what are the values of the patients that are most important, and can we develop a scale that kind of helps match um, those values to outcomes that might be treatment-sensitive? So tell me, is there anything specifically that you would like our colleagues to know about these guidelines? Yeah, I think, first of all, that they're here. <laughs> um, you know, our task force, which was comprised of just wonderful physicians and researchers, um, spent almost four years in developing these guidelines. And so they're very thorough. Um, I think people can have high level of confidence in the recommendations that we were able to provide but they're not perfect. And I think one thing that's important to take away, we talked a little bit about the gaps of, of these guidelines, but I think you know, members should really just, um, just remember that you know, the guidelines will need updates down the road as newer medications um, get approved, which I think there are hopefully gonna be a number in the next few years um, coming down the pipeline. And that, you know, as you said before, these guidelines are not prescriptive, so it's not telling you how to practice, um, but rather just kind of giving people the, the tools of trying to advocate for the medications we do provide recommendations for. Wow. So there are a lot of developments in the treatment of hypersomnias, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about them and to summarize the new AASM guideline for us. And thank you for all of your good work with children. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. 
Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>